sunlight still after daylight savings time. It's kind of refreshing to not see it dark outside as we begin our, our time together tonight. I'm glad you're here. I'm glad you're back for this. Over the last five weeks, we've been looking at the different genres of the scriptures and different ways that we interpret each of those different genres. And so if you remember, we talked about historical narratives, we've talked about poetry, we've talked about Proverbs, and we've talked about prophecy. And so we're in the home stretch of our study after we did our foundational weeks and looked at the different genres. We're in our last genre tonight as we get to the epistles or the letters. And then we'll be off, just to remind you, next week we're off for spring break week, so get a Wednesday night off to, to rest or be on vacation or whatever you do over spring break week. And then we'll be back and we just have two more weeks of this study. And when we come back in two weeks, we're going to look at special forms of speech and language. That's not a genre of itself, but there are all the genres you have special forms of speech, like hyperbole and exaggeration and what do you do with those teachings when Jesus says, if your right hand causes you sin, chop it off? Well, why are we not like hanging axes around the building here to help you with that? Like, you know, what do you do with exaggeration? How do we understand that? What are the rules for understanding those type uh, figurative language in the scriptures? We're going to talk about that. And then the last week, we're going to talk particularly just about resources to help you. If you have questions, if there's stuff you want to go deeper on, we're going to point you to resources to help you with that. Now, with that said, I know some of you have questions that are coming into your thinking as you've been going through this study. I know one of you has already emailed me some great questions that I hope we'll be able to answer in the weeks to come. But I gave you all, when, with the handout tonight, this little extra question sheet. And if you have questions that have come to your mind through this study that you want me to attempt to address over the next two weeks, I'll just jot them down for me. If you don't want to write it down here, you're welcome to email them to me, call the office, whatever. But if you want to tonight, if you want to jot them down, you don't have to put your name on it. Just if you have some questions you want me to answer over the next two weeks, I'll do my best on that. Write them down and just leave them up here for me or give them to me before you leave tonight. And we'll do our very best to try to get all your questions answered over these remaining two weeks that we have in, our, in this particular study. So as we come tonight, I just again want to remind us of the big picture of why we're doing this. I want us to remember at the beginning of each week why we're doing this particular study, because this is not an academic exercise. This is not doing this for the sake of just doing a drill in theology or do, taking a class or something like that. We're doing this because we want to know God better, and so much is on the line in knowing how to understand the Bible. I've given us two scriptures to consider as we start tonight. First is Romans ten seventeen. Which simply tells us faith comes from hearing, and hearing through the word of Christ. And just to remind us, there's obviously a lot more in that context of what's going on there in Romans 10. But for us to even have faith, to know who God is and to believe, we have to have heard the gospel. We have to understand the gospel, the words of Christ, the words of Scripture. We have to know it. So friends, what's at stake is not just the ability to better understand Scripture. What's at stake here is ultimately us having faith, because God has chosen to reveal himself to us through the pages of Scripture so therefore, we're studying this so that we might have our faith increase and we better know God. And then the next passage there, Luke chapter 11, verse 28. Blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and keep it. Just to remind us, there is a blessing with this. When we know the word and we say the word, God blesses us in that. But also notice we're not studying it for knowledge's sake. We're studying it so that we might obey. You know, the goal in this is not just more knowledge. The goal in this is obedience, holiness, is knowing who God is and worshiping him, walking in holiness before the Lord. And so we really want to know the Lord. That's why we do this particular study. So that brings us to our final genre of Scripture. And I remember genres are different aspects of Scripture with different principles for interpretation within them. So we get tonight, <coughs> excuse me, to the epistles. What are epistles? Epistles are letters. And before we look at kind of the definitions of what is in the epistles, realize a bulk of the New Testament is this genre. So this is a genre we really want to make sure we understand correctly. Out of the 27 books of the New Testament, 21 are epistles. And so we've got to make sure we understand how to approach this. If 21 of the 27 books of the New Testament are this particular genre. Now, so what are the epistles? Number one, they are letters. But not just any letters. I can write a letter to a friend, but it's not going to make it in the pages of Scripture. 
There's a reason our Bible is not a three-ring binder where you can open up and add more pages to it. These are inspired letters. These are letters, but letters that God desired to be part of the canon of Scripture. <coughs> Excuse me. Second Timothy chapter 3, we've used this many times, but it, this bears repeating again as we come to the epistles in this massive part of the New Testament. 2 Timothy 3 tells us that all Scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. And so these letters that Paul writes or Peter writes, as we have them collected in the Scriptures, these are Scripture. These are God's breath to us. So they're letters written to particular people at a particular time. They're still God's words, so they are inspired Letters And then 2 Timothy chapter 3, I, I love this particular text to remind us about the nature of all of Scripture, but the letters and the epistles as well. This is what Peter says. And count the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you, according to the wisdom given to him, as he does in all his letters when he speaks in them of these matters. There are some things in them that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and un- unstable twist to their own destruction as they do the other Scriptures. Now, there's a lot that goes into this particular text, but I hope this gives you hope here. Peter, who is writing scripture here, says, there's things in Paul I have trouble understanding. So when you're reading the Bible, you're going, I'm having a hard time getting my mind around this. Great, Peter had trouble with it also. It's okay. So there's, there's mysteries of who God is. And so just realize that. But the significance to what we're talking about tonight with the epistles, notice how he describes Paul's writings. And that last two lines says, there's some things in them, in what in Paul's letters, that are hard to understand, which the ignorant, unstable, twist their own destruction, as they do the other scriptures. Notice how Peter here associates Paul's letters with the other scriptures. Here there's already the recognition by this point that he's writing Second Peter of Paul's writings being associated, his letters, these epistles being associated with the rest of the scripture. So they're letters, but not ordinary letters. They are inspired letters, God's breath to us, God's words to us in the form of these letters. Second of all, what are the epistles? They are occasional. Now, what do I mean by occasional? Occasion, you think of like a particular situation. An occasion here means it's written to a specific audience at a specific time to address a specific situation that they're facing. So they're written in light of a particular occasion, a specific people, specific time in history to address a specific situation. As they're written that way, they're not just like random collection of theological thoughts put together. They're a letter written to real people in real time in history to address a real situation as such. They're very passionate. The epistles are packed full of emotion and passion because they're addressing very real situations. They're not just random ramblings of some, of some author here. Why were they written? Well, they were often written, as it says on your handout, to correct behavior, to teach or correct certain doctrines or belief, and to clarify misunderstandings. So if you want to pull this together, what are they written for? They're written for instruction. The whole point of these epistles, the whole point of these letters is instruction. They were given to specific people for instruction. It was instruction for a specific time. It was instruction to address a specific situation or situations that was arisen at the time. It was also written to answer the questions that people had at the time. Well, that poses a slight challenge for us as we try to understand the scriptures because we know what the answers are being given here, but we don't know what questions are being asked. Have you ever been on the other end of a living room and your spouse or your kid is on the telephone and you're only hearing one end of the conversation? And you're trying to kind of piece together, okay, what are they, why do they say it that way? What are they, what's going on the other end of the telephone? It's like the old Charlie Brown cartoons where you had the teacher or the parent otherwise, and all you hear is rah, 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 rah. And then you hear Charlie Brown respond and you're trying to figure out, okay, what did the teacher really say to cause him to respond that way? That's kind of a little bit of an image of what we face as we look at the epistles here. Because, again, they were written by the the authors for specific people to address specific situations 
but they don't tell us what the specific situations were usually. So we're kind of trying to piece together a little bit of, okay, well, why are they addressing this so hard? Or what's going on here in history to why these things are being said? But again, that's not the point of the epistles, us to piece that together. But it does make it a little bit more of a challenge for us as we seek to understand them. So the epistles are inspired letters, God's breath, God's word to us. They were occasional written to specific people at specific times for specific situations. But three, to keep that occasional part in balance, they were also written with a wider audience in view. So yes, they were for a specific people, but the writers seemed to get that there was a broader audience beyond just the particular situation they were looking at. So I have on your handout there Colossians chapter 4, <coughs> excuse me, verse 16. Listen to what Paul said to the people at Colossae. And when this letter has been read among you, have it also read in the church of the Laodiceans and see, that, and see that you also read the letter from Laodicea. So Paul already at this point realized that he was addressing an occasion, a specific people at a specific time. He had in mind other churches and other cities still being able to read this particular letter as well. Likewise, you look at what Paul wrote to the people in Corinth in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Listen to how he addresses them in his introduction. To the church of God that is in Corinth, for those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. So he's addressing this. Again, it's an occasional letter. He's writing to the people in Corinth in a particular time to address specific things. But he also has in mind the broader saints here, those who are together with you in all places calling the name of the Lord. That means the authors of Scripture, though they were occasional in their writing, had in view a wider audience, including you and me as well. They're God's words for us. So they're inspired letters, they're occasional, they're written though with a wider audience view, but number four, they are rich in theology and in life application. This is where we often go to in the epistles because there's so much in here about the nature of God and doctrines like justification. There's so much in here about spiritual warfare and God's plan for marriage and there's just, they're, they're rich in that sense as far as so much theology and life application. Like take for example the book of Ephesians. If you look at the book of Ephesians and want to break down Ephesians, it's fascinating. Chapters 1, 2, and 3 are all about theology, who God is. Chapters 4, 5, and 6 are all about the practical living that comes out of that. And so often when we go to Ephesians, unfortunately, we'll like, well, I want to learn about spiritual warfare, so I'm going to go to Ephesians chapter 6. Or I want to learn about marriage, so I'm going to go to Ephesians chapter 5. And so we go to that, but we forget that that, that practical life teaching is rooted in the theology of chapters 1, 2, and 3. And they almost perfectly mirror. If you want to do a fun exercise sometime, look at the, write down the main ideas of chapter 1, then write down the main application of chapter 4, 2, 5, 3, 6. And it almost like perfectly parallels so of each of those chapter divisions in that. And so you have in just the, the little tiny book of Ephesians deep theological truths about the nature of God and about salvation and where our salvation comes from and how we receive our salvation. Then you have all this practical teaching about how that then applies to unity and to marriage and to spiritual warfare and all these topics in the latter half of the book. And so as you look at that, you realize that it's rich in theology and in life application. Now with that said, a little disclaimer, none of these epistles are written to be a theological treatise on a particular theological topic. You don't have a book, you know, Paul, an apostle of Christ Christ Jesus, written to the people at Colossae to teach you about spiritual warfare. Then you don't have six chapters on spiritual warfare. There's lots of different theologies in that. They cover such a wide range of topics. If you're wanting to find a particular teaching on a particular theology, that's what systematic theology is for. Systematic theology is the attempt of scholars to put together all the teachings of Scripture on a topic into one place. So you don't go to the book of Ephesians to build a theology of one thing. You're going to Ephesians to see what was being said to the people at Ephesus as well as to us today in that. Now, if you want to go deep and you want to figure out something like spiritual warfare or marriage, I'd recommend a a theology book to you. The one that is my favorite is systematic theology. You can tell it's well-loved and well-worn by me over the years. But if you're wanting 
to find all the teachings of Scripture on a topic, a book like this is what you go to. When you look at the epistles, you're seeing rather a broad range of a lot of theological topics all put together into a particular letter. So that leads to the next page of how are the epistles organized? What are you looking at when you look at the epistles? Well, again, they're letters. Think of letters today that are written. If you write a letter or your business writes a letter, you put the date in the top right corner, right? Put the address of the person next, dear so-and-so, comma. Put a space in there, you know. I've noticed that your bill is passed, you know, whatever you put in there, and then sincerely you sign your name. There's a common format that we recognize. Likewise, at this time that the Bible was written, there was a common form for all letters, scriptural letters, and just things out in the general culture as well. And it was very different than how we do it today. How are they organized? Number one, they always begin with a salutation. They always begin by telling you the sender. And so if I was writing a letter today in biblical format, I would begin the letter, Grady, your pastor at Gateway, to the same. So you begin with the title of who wrote the letter is the very first line. The second thing it tells you are the recipients. That's the next thing that comes in the still part of the salutation is the recipients. Now, most of the epistles were written to congregations. There are a few that were written to individuals, but the bulk of the epistles was actually written to congregations as a whole. So you have the person who sent it, you have the recipients, and usually right in that same salutation, you have some type of greeting. Even in the secular world at the time, there would be some type of greeting that would be given to the people um, to, to welcome them or to, to introduce the letter. Now, let me just give you an example of that. If in the book of Colossians here, let me just read this for you, just to get a feel of how this typically works, so you're probably familiar with it. Colossians 1, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God and Timothy, our brother. So verse 1, there's the person writing it. Verse 2, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae. That's how he wrote to. Number, then it follows up with, grace to you and peace from God our Father. And so you often see some type of thing in the salutation of grace or peace <coughs> or some type of other greeting like that, some type of spiritual greeting of welcoming them, introducing the letter in the name of Jesus. So it begins with a salutation. Number two, then, if you see on Hannah, it continues with thanksgiving and prayer. All of Paul's letters but one have some form of thanksgiving or prayer for the people as it begins. So in Colossians, after he's introduced, who's writing it? Paul with Timothy, written to the saints at Colossae. He welcomes them with grace and peace. Then it begins with his thanksgiving for them in his prayer, which I actually preached in one of my early sermons here. Verse 3, We always thank God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, and we pray for you since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love that you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Of this you've heard before in the word of the truth, the gospel, which has come to you as indeed in the whole world that is bearing fruit and growing as it does among you since the day you heard it. So he goes on and you have this beautiful prayer that follows from the verse 9. So from the day we heard, we've not ceased to pray for you, asking that you'll be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. I mean, what a great letter to receive from the Apostle Paul when you get this, of his prayer for them before he even gets into the content of the letter. So you have your salutation, you have your thanksgiving and prayer, and then you get to the body of the letter, the part we typically are going to to study. So in Colossians, it starts in verse 15. You have the excellencies of Christ, the preeminence of Christ. You have Paul discussing his ministry on these pages. He corrects false teaching. Again, like the telephone conversation, we do not know what the false teaching was. We can only speculate based on his teaching here, but he's correct some type of false teaching the church was facing. He talks about what the Christian life looks like. And then the final end, you have number four there on your list. You have some type of conclusion to the letter. In Colossians, this kind of a long conclusion, he says, Tychius will tell you all about my activities. He's a beloved brother and faithful minister. I've sent him to you for this very purpose. Then verse 10, Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, greets you. And Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, and he starts going through this list of people. Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ, greets you also. 
and starts going through the list of people he's, who, who's sending this greeting as he's wrapping this up in the conclusion. And then he finally ends in verse 18. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. Remember my chains. Grace be with you. And so the epistles typically are going to be structured around a salutation, some type of thanksgiving or prayer, a body, the conclusion. Now, this is generally how they're done. This is not how they all are done. If you go to Hebrews, we do not even know who wrote Hebrews. And depending on which scholar you talk to, everyone's got a different theory on that. And I'm not even going to get into that one tonight on who we think might have written Hebrews. But Hebrews doesn't even give you an introduction like you would typically have. It just goes straight into the letter with no type of introduction of, of really who it was written to, who, it was, who wrote it, any of those type things. So this is not a hard and fast rule that you will always find. But this is the way they generally are organized, which we'll get to in a minute. If you find an epistle where some, one of these elements is missing should alert your attention. I need to look at this. Why has something changed in this particular epistle? Well, that leads us into how do you understand the epistles? What do you do with these to make sure we interpret them correctly? I've, had, I've seen several scholars who said the epistles are the easiest part of the Bible to understand and interpret. Well, let's just talk about that in your groups tonight, if you agree or disagree with that. Do you find the epistles to be the easiest part of the Bible to understand and interpret, or do you find them to be challenging as well. Regardless of that, the main principle for approaching epistles is there on your handout. The epistles cannot mean something different than the original author intended them to mean. We talked about authorial intent a lot as we interpret scripture, as we understand scripture. What did the author mean when he wrote it? And again, especially because these are occasional books written to specific situations, the meaning is tied up in the occasion it was written for. So we have to do our best to understand the author's intent in this. And so the meaning cannot be different than that. So the, the, with the epistles, like all of them, it cannot mean one thing to me and some, mean something different to you and mean something else. There was a meaning in the text that Paul intended or Peter intended in the book. Now, it may have application to us. It does have application to us, and it may be different in your life and mine application, but the meaning is tied to the text itself. With that principle in mind, there's several things we can do to best understand the epistles. Number one <coughs> is to pay attention to the introduction, to pay attention to the introduction. It is easy in any book to skip the introduction. When, I, when I'm studying through books with groups or with guys differently, of different books we're looking at, a lot of times we'll start in chapter one. I always go, no, go read the introduction because the introduction is going to tell you a lot about where the book is going. Same thing in the Bible. It's easy when we get to these books when we see Paul start off with Galatians. Paul, an apostle, not for man. We're like, oh, here we go again. The normal grace say grace to you and peace, and we'll move on. You know, it's easy to skim over that, but don't skim over that. The introductions are going to be very crucial to understanding the overarching purpose of the book, the, the key themes even get unveiled. So like if you in Galatians chapter 1, here's Paul's introduction to the people of Galatia. Paul, an apostle, not from men, nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him from the dead, and all the brothers who are with me, to the churches of Galatia, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Well, we can just glance at that and think, well, it sounds like the way our Ephesians or Philippians or Colossians and gloss over it. But there's something really important here. Number one, unlike the other books, he's asserting his apostolic authority in deeper ways in his introduction than his other books. He says, I'm an apostle, not from men, nor through man, but through Jesus Christ. Why is he asserting this? Because there's been false teachers coming in at the church, and they've been questioning his authority and trying to lead people astray. So he asserts his authority stronger here, and that should alert our attention. There's something big going on in this church to where he needs to assert his apostolic authority, not just Paul, a fellow prisoner, or Paul, a fellow servant. He's saying, I am not because of man here. I am here through Jesus Christ. So he's alerting them to something that's important there with that. But if you notice, almost all Paul's other letters have a thanksgiving in there, something to be thankful for. There's absolutely no thanksgiving at the beginning of Galatians. 
And so it started raising the question, well, why is Paul not giving a thanksgiving? And all his, in all of his other letters, he gives, I'm thankful for you. I'm thankful for this. There's no thanksgiving. He just says grace to you and peace. Why is there no thanksgiving? Because verse 6, I'm astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you. He has nothing to be thankful for right there. This church is abandoning the gospel. This church has let false teachers come in. They're leading the people astray. They're even questioning Paul's authority. And so Paul comes in not with, I'm so thankful that you're doing what you're doing. No, he comes in pretty angry at him, if you want to interpret it that way. And so because of that, he comes in without the thanksgiving. So what we would normally gloss over is really insightful. He is asserting apostolic authority. He doesn't have his normal thanksgiving because this church has forsaken the gospel. And so we see in his introduction a clue to that. Likewise, you can look for key themes to develop. Again, 1 Corinthians, it's easy to just kind of skip over the, the first nine verses because they're introduction and want to jump into teaching those spiritual gifts or whatever else you're looking for in 1 Corinthians. But you can listen to the introduction of 1 Corinthians. Paul, called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus in our brother Sophonies. So there's who wrote it. Now, in the salutation, who it goes to. Verse 2, to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. Now the typical greeting, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now the prayer of thanksgiving. I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus. In every way you were enriched in him, in all speech and in all knowledge. Wait, we're going to hear a lot more about speech and knowledge in Corinthians as he goes through this book. Even as a testimony about Christ was confirmed among you, so that as you are not lacking any spiritual gift. Whoa, wait. What do we normally go to Corinthians for? Teaching on spiritual gifts. Even in the introduction, Paul is now bringing out spiritual gifts. As you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful by whom you were called in the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. So even in the first nine verses of the introduction, it's not just a formality here. He is unveiling his key themes. He's going to be talking about spiritual gifts and knowledge and speech. He's going to be full of thanksgiving in his letter in that. And so just be looking in the introduction for themes. Look for things that are missing that normally are there to try to get a sense of what's happening in the letter. So number one, pay attention to the introduction. Second thing to do to understand the epistle, read the verses in light of the context. This is going to sound a little bit redundant to what we talked about when the early was what we do. We read things in light of the context. These verses are not meant to stand alone. And that's one of the temptations with these verses. And it's an honest temptation because most devotionals we pick up that are good devotionals for the most part will have one verse from an epistle often and then lots of commentary of thoughts and cool stories and stuff to apply. The problem is that verse was never designed to be, to be standing alone. Now think about it. We, we don't, we're not a culture that really writes a lot of letters anymore. But some of you perhaps in the past, your spouse now wrote you a letter. Maybe you were away in the military, you're away at school, and so y'all wrote letters back and forth. Or maybe now it's emails back and forth, or I guess now it's text messages, right, that we don't even say. But back in the days of letters, think about it. Let's say you and your wife are at home tonight, you're digging through an old box, and you find a letter that your spouse wrote. You don't open that letter and go find one line, close the letter, and just think about that one line over and over and over in no regard to the letter. Because that one line was part of a flow of thought. Same thing in the epistles, and for that, that part, all of Scripture... The, the single verses that we often pull out to highlight are really part of an overarching thought of this. And when you need to look at the context, and there's two aspects of the context here. The first one I mentioned on the handout is the broad context, or perhaps the better word is the overall context. What is the overall context of the whole book? How do you find this? If you want to find the broad or the overall context, I want you to do two things. Number one, read the entire book. The entire epistle, not necessarily the Bible, Genesis to Revelation, that's good. But if you're studying a verse out of Philippians, I can do all things to Christ who strengthens me, which you'll talk about that verse in your small groups tonight. If you look at that, 
don't just read that one verse and build your whole life on that one verse. You read the whole book of Philippians and try to say, okay, what is the whole book about here? With that said, if you're like me, often our mind wanders when we start to read longer stretches of things. I'd encourage you to read it out loud. Because if you think about it, when the early church received these, there wasn't like multiple copies. People didn't all pull out their little cell phones when they got the letter from Paul and all. Just follow along on your cell phone, follow along on the screen. Someone would stand up in the church and read the letter to the church. I'd encourage you just to read the letter. There's something fun about reading out loud that will help your mind focus. And for me, even as I'm preparing sermons, I'll read it out loud and I'll be like, whoa, how did I miss that word? I've read this thing a million times and I never noticed that word. And reading out loud when you're vocalizing it, you start to notice things sometimes that you miss, at least if your brain works like mine does on it. So read the entire book and read it in one setting. If you're studying a verse out of Ephesians, that's easy. It'll take a few minutes. If you're studying a verse out of Romans, that may take a little bit more time in your schedule to read all of Romans in one sitting out loud. But again, when Paul wrote the book of Romans, it was designed to be read as one flow of thought. So if you're trying to study one part of Romans, read the whole thing. Just set aside some time and do that. So the first part of finding the overall context, read the whole book out loud in one sitting. Second of all, ask questions about the context. We're not going to go into a lot of depth tonight, but if you go back to one of our first weeks of what do we do when we interpret Scripture, go back to some of those questions. Ask questions in the text. Who wrote it? What was the situation? What was it written? What were they addressing? What do we know was going on historically at the time? What, what issues might have been written? So ask some of those foundational questions of the text to get the overall context. Then you want to get the immediate context. Again, you never interpret a verse in isolation. So look at the surrounding verses. One scholar says, think paragraph. Now, with that, a little disclaimer. When the, when the Bible was written, they didn't use paragraphs. They didn't even use punctuation. You, know, all, you do know that, that all the paragraph breaks and punctuation was added by translators. It would look like just like one big run-on sentence. You know, your teachers always taught you don't have run-on sentences. Well, the whole Bible, each letter was like basically one run-on sentence. Greek didn't have punctuation. Greek didn't even have spacing. When Paul wrote to the people at Ephesus in the book of Ephesians, he just started writing words and letters, and there was no space. He just kept going, and we got to the end, you just go to the next, you know, you just keep going. There's literally no spaces, no punctuation, no paragraphs. So with that said, when I say think paragraphs, the disclaimer is the translators added it. But the translators are trying to help you think through the flow of thought. So compare different Bibles, different translations if you want to, and see what the flow of thought is. But in your mind, the point of this is you don't want to just hone in on one verse and forget about everything around it. Just like you wouldn't with a letter from your spouse. You need to focus on the overarching theme of that section of the scriptures on that. And so you try to see what was going on in the flow of thought around that point. With that said, there's some helpful things to think about <coughs> on the next page here. And these are what I call linking words. Now, this is going to sound a little bit like elementary school English grammar for us for a moment here. But it's easy when we're looking at scriptures, particularly the epistles, to fly over these words and pass over them. So when we see the therefores, we don't even think about... As I heard one pastor say in the past, what is that therefore, therefore? You know, we don't really pause and think about the fours, the ofs, the therefores, in spite ofs. You know, we just kind of see those and we, again, hone in on what phrase or verse we like. But it's part of a flow of thought. When Paul was writing, when Peter was writing, they were building an argument to address a specific people at a specific time. And they used transition words in their flow of thought. And so when we see those words, we should almost like pause and stop and be like, okay, what is that therefore? Therefore, why did he put a four there? Why is there a so? So just a few examples of how this helps us. There's causal words, words like because or for or so. So when you read James chapter 4, verse 2, it says, You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covenant, you can't obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You have like three causal words there. So the reason why people are murdering is because they desire things. Why do people fight? Because they're coveting. You know, that you see the causal effect 
in those words, result words, next one, words like so as, so that, don't pass over this. We see them. Think about what is the flow of thought that Paul's writing here in Philippians 1. It is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve what is excellent, and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. And you don't want to pass over that word so. Paul's praying for them. Why is he praying for them? Because he desires, he wants the result of them being pure and blameless for Christ. That little tiny word so carries so much meaning in this text. Purpose words, <coughs> in order that or that. So Romans 1.11, For I long to see you. Why that? I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. Understand better Paul's purpose in writing and wanting to even be there. Conditional words, like if. 2 Corinthians 5.17, you probably know. Well, therefore, if anyone's in Christ, he's a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. Everyone in the world is not a new creation. That if is really significant. If you don't have the if, you have universalism here. That little if clarifies that those who are in Christ, those are the ones now who are a new creation. What are called concession words. Though, even though, even if. In Philippians chapter 2, verse 5. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though was in the form of God, did not account, did not count quality with God a thing to be grass, though, that middle word in that, the mindset we're to have is Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, though he was God, and have every right to do that, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grass. We see that he had the right to it, he laid it aside, and that becomes an example for us. Words that t- talk about the means through which things come, the mean words, not the mean words like you're saying something not kind, but means by which things happen. So mean words like by and through. Ephesians 2, for by grace... You have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It's the gift of God, not a result of work, so that no one may boast. That word by there and through is significant to understanding salvation. And then the manner words, again, not manners of like being polite at the table, chew with your mouth shut. No, not those type of manners, but manners like the manner in which things happen. Words like with and in. So 1 Thessalonians 1, 5. Because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. So you have in there, these, these, how did the gospel come? It came in power. There's the manner in which it came. How the manner in which it came was also in the Holy Spirit. It came with full conviction. You see the description of it. So I'll just say, you know, you don't need to spend tons of time on those words, but just my point is don't gloss over those words. Those little tiny words that we just use every day in our conversation carry much meaning to help us understand the author's argument <coughs> and flow of thought. So number three, the next step of, in how to understand the epistles, not only do you pay attention to the introduction, not only do you look at the context, but number three, study the text. Well, I know this sounds like duh, but you know, let me give you some practical things of how to study the text. There's three steps I do when I'm trying to understand the epistles or anything for that matter that I commend to you before you go read what your study Bible notes say. Number one, to diagram the text, to diagram the text. You've heard me probably mention this before, but I thought I'd try to show it to you. So if you turn the page, this is an example of how I diagram a text. There's not a right or wrong way to do it. If you showed this to an English grammar teacher in high school, she would probably butcher this because it's not a completely correct structural diagram. But I'm trying to look at the flow of thought. And so when I preached on Colossians 1 here back in the fall, late fall, I think it was November, December, This is actually what I used for that. And why do you diagram the text? Because it shows you things in the flow of thought you would miss otherwise. When you're reading in paragraph form, you can miss so much. But look, Colossians 1. And so, I'll put that in brackets because there's a transition word. So, and so what? What's the connection here? This is what he's about to say is not independent to read on its own, but it's connected somehow to the previous first eight verses. And so, related to that, from the day we heard, we have not ceased to do what? To pray, asking that 
And then I went, as I started looking at the text, I'm like, oh, look, there's two things they're asking for. You may be filled and may you be strengthened. So let's kind of break that down by phrases. You may be filled what? With the knowledge of his will. And what? In all spiritual wisdom. And what? Understanding. So what? Here's that reason for it, the purpose. To walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work, increasing in the knowledge of God. And so, at least for me, when I start seeing it broken down like that, I can start seeing Paul's flow of thought here. When all that's just compressed into one long line, I miss so much of his flow of thought and his argument that all of a sudden starts becoming clear to me. So you pick back up in verse 11. May you be strengthened, what? With all power. How? According to his glorious might. Why? For all endurance and patience with joy. Doing what? Giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints and light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son. So I'm going back through it after I read it. I go, wait, God's done three things for us in verse. He's qualified us, he's delivered us, he's transferred us. So I kind of mark those. Things I might have missed otherwise when I see it in this form, I can start seeing as I try to line stuff up. Oh my goodness, there's two things that Paul prays here, that we'd be filled and we'd be strengthened. And as he's praying, what's he thanking God for? Three things God's done for us. He's qualified us, he's delivered us, he's transferred us. And boom, all of a sudden this text comes alive to me because I can now see the two things that Paul's praying. And I can see with my eyes the three things God has already done for us. So it's not the only way to do it. That's just a way that I commend to you if you're trying to understand a, a passage that you're confused about, just kind of write it out and try to figure out the flow of thought visually on that. After I do that, then the second thing I'd recommend is I call it just initial observations. Before you even go to the commentary to understand it, you can even use that page to start writing down next to it thoughts you may have. Like, and so I might write next to that, like, so that what he's saying here is not independent, it's connected to something else. You know, he used the word pray and ask side by side. They mean the same thing. You just kind of write down your thoughts of the text. You're kind of almost like writing your own little commentary, not to publish or sell, but just thoughts to help you understand the text. And so you just write observations down. So when I first did this, you know, I wrote down, oh my goodness, there's two things here that Paul prays. And look, there's three things God has done for us, and these look like they're passive, that they're done to us, not that we've done ourselves. Just kind of make your notes on that. Then I take this again, then I start, and the third step I do is I write questions. What do I not understand about this? What is that and so in verse 9 pointing us to you know what is the tense of you may be filled and may you be strengthened is it passive like it appears in this you know verse 10 the knowledge of god what does the knowledge of god mean where is it used that way in scripture you know and so i'll just write down questions that i think are going to be important to the text and then i pull out the study bibles and then i pull out the commentaries because then your thinking is already being shaped by the word itself not everyone else's opinion of it and so when you get into the epistles particularly i would highly recommend especially as you're going deep with it, to take some time and diagram a text and to go through and to write your observations and write questions down and then pull out the resources to help you understand it. Number four, then, of what you do with the epistles. After you say the text, study significant words. All I'm going to say here is simply to get, do some word studies. Go deep with the words. The author had a reason for using the words he used, obviously in original languages, so we're, you know, step back translations. You can refer back to that teaching we did a few weeks back on understanding translation philosophies of that. But do word studies. How is this word used by, the, by Paul elsewhere? How is this word used in the rest of the New Testament? How is this word used in the rest of <coughs> the Scripture? You know, a lot of your Bibles will have a concordance in the back of it. You know, and if you want to see, well, how's that word used elsewhere? You know, where else is this word whole used? And, oh, there it is. And you can find it in the back, the listing of it. There's some cool tools you can get online to help with that. There's lots of books that do that as well. But you can do look for significant words. Back on the little chart... I gave you a lot of times I'll put the words I think are significant in bold so I don't forget about them and can think about them and go back and study those words more in depth. And then number five that's really important, seek to apply its principles to today. Now, again, when we've talked about this, 
The meaning is tied to the occasion it was written, but there's application for a stay. The epistles were written for instruction with a wider audience of view, so, so God has in mind instruction for us as well. We don't want to just read the epistle and be like, well, that's really cool that Paul wrote that to the, to the Corinthians, and then close our Bibles and be done. Think back to one of the very first verses we looked at tonight about obeying. The epistles are there by God's grace gift to us to help us obey. So seek to apply the principles today to where we're at. Our goal is not some historical reconstruction. Our goal is knowing God. Now, how do we try to find the application for us today? As you, as you read the text and as you look at the epistles, let me encourage you to look for two things. One, look for things that are eternal. There's obviously things that are cultural there. There's things that address specific situations. But what are the eternal principles that we learn about God and mankind and how we relate to God and God's expectation? Find what is eternal in that particular text. But second of all, look at what is cross-cultural. Again, to reference back to stuff we talked about earlier, the role of cultural understandings as you look at Scripture. You know, what do you do when you find Paul writing, greet one another with a holy kiss? Well, there's a reason why we haven't applied that at Gateway on Sunday mornings. It might be a little bit awkward moment here for all our visitors who come. Well, why don't we do that? Or do we not care what the Bible says? Is it not literally true? Well, yes. But is that a cultural understanding? You know, if you go to the Middle East and you tell the church, greet one another with a holy kiss, the men will be giving one another holy kisses on the cheeks. That's, that's normal in that culture. How do we apply that principle? What's that? Okay. Yeah, so, so there, there's, there's cultures to where that is very much normal. And this culture here... That would not be the norm. And so what, do we, what is the eternal truth behind greeting another with a holy kiss? What's the eternal principle there that we learn? And how do we apply that in our context right here? So being faithful to the scriptures in a way that is appropriate where we are at. And so we do the holy handshake around here or the side hugs, right? You know, we, we find different ways. But all that is to say, you know, find what is the eternal principle in the text and then find what is cross-cultural. Those are two things you're looking for. What is cross-cultural and what is eternal? And so in the greeting one of the Holy Kiss, the methodology of the greeting is cultural. The cross-cultural principle is warm welcoming within the body of Christ. So you try to look for those type things as you go for that. And so to look for eternal, look for cross-cultural, and then you try to figure out how we apply those to the situations in which <coughs> we find ourselves today. Well, that leads us to our discussion time for tonight. And so, <coughs> excuse me, let me kind of talk you through what I want you to do in your groups tonight. Hopefully it'll be a little bit easier than some of the last few weeks. I know I've stumped y'all the last weeks with some questions that haven't given you quite enough time to do them all. But number one, easy question, right? Here's, here's the easy one for you. Do you think the epistles are the easiest genre to understand? Why or why not? And it may be different. There are people in the group who may have different ideas. But for you personally, do you find the epistles to be one of the easiest things to understand? Or do you find other genres easier? Number two, what is the advantage of studying the entire book instead of just looking at the one verse in isolation? Again, well-meaning devotionals give you one verse and that's it. What is the advantage to actually looking at the whole book instead of the one verse? Number three, the epistles are both occasional with a meaning rooted in the response to a specific situation at a specific time and yet also timeless with application for us today. So here you can have some fun with this one. How is that possible? How can a text have a meaning rooted in a particular time and place but have application for today? How does considering the epistles to be both occasional and timeless help us understand the text that makes sense what is the what is considering both aspects of that help us as we seek to understand it and then but what challenges does that pose us for today is we try to apply the epistles to life situations today knowing that they were occasional for a particular time and place elsewhere what what challenges does that pose for us now i've just got one text for you to work through tonight a very common one philippians 4:13. i can do all things through christ who strengthens me Perhaps one of the one verse that's put up, pulled out by itself and put on diploma frames and put on hanging above our sofas and on church stationery and on signs. I mean, we use that verse everywhere. Well, 
again, we don't take one verse out of context in there. What does it mean? So the Philippians, the first part of that question, go read the introduction, chapter, chapter 1, verses 1 through 11. What do we learn about from the introduction of the letter? What is Paul trying to do with the whole point of this book? Second question, what do you know about the primary message of the entire letter? You may have to kind of put your heads together a little bit here. But what is Paul addressing in Philippians? We need to flip through and look at the headings and try to refresh your memory. But, but w- again, Philippians 4.13 is part of the flow of an overall argument. It's not designed to be standalone. What's Paul trying to do in this letter? The third part of that, what is the immediate context around this verse? So what is Paul talking about in the verses right before Philippians 4.13, right afterwards? So what is the flow of thought? And so then in light of that, what did Paul mean? So what does Philippians 4.13 mean in light of this? But then the follow-up, because that's the occasional part, now the timeless part, now how do we apply Philippians 4.13 in light of that to where we are today? So I want you to do all those things for about the next 20 minutes, and I would like you to take a few minutes in and pray for one another, to pray for Carmen, to pray for Elaine, pray for other needs you may be aware of in the body as well, and so take a few minutes on that. So guys who normally lead our discussion, would you, would you stand up for us for a minute? I see several of y'all here tonight. There we go. And so if y'all will, if anyone else just feels comfortable leading, if y'all want to divide up around... Those guys, yeah, Dave's going to come over here, split up into the groups, um, and work through those questions. Let me know if you have any questions on it.